Are you ready for our trail half marathon coming up? I'm ready, but I'm not so sure about my calves. Running over those sticks and rocks has got them sore and achy. Ow. Well, I wonder actually how that might relate to your muscle activity. I bet we could use the game-changing wireless sensors developed by our sponsor, Delsys, so they wouldn't interfere with my natural motion to find out. Hmm. Well, good point. And Delsys has done a lot of research and innovation to ensure they're collecting actual physiological data and not noise from movement artifacts and other contaminants, so they're super reliable sensors. Plus, onboard filtering helps to improve accuracy by mitigating against issues associated with collecting data and highly dynamic activities like trail running. And even other applications like sports performance analysis, clinical testing, and robotics. If you're listening and interested in seeing how these kind of advancements can empower your data collection in and out of the lab, go to delsis.com boom and enter to win one of their portable EMG solutions, the Trigno Light. Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Dr. Melissa Boswell. And I'm Dr. Hannah O'Day. And we're researchers at Stanford University. It's, it's time, time for boom. boom. Welcome to Boom. Where we have biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 Welcome back to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And today we have part two of our amazing series on human performance that's supported by the WUSAI Human Performance Alliance. In this series, we talk to experts doing incredible work in human performance across both academia and industry. And in this episode, woo, it was a good one. We talk with Nicole Keith, who is a professor at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, and the current president of the American College of Sports Medicine. And she shared her research and passion in health equity and physical activity and the importance of making physical activity accessible to everyone, no matter where they're at, where they're starting from, mm-hmm. just really this, this concept of what equity really means. And it was really exciting to have this conversation on Boom!, not necessarily something we've talked about before, and mm-hmm. I think something that we'll want everyone to keep talking about going forward. Definitely. And Nicole also talks about how she works with policymakers, and that's something that I think is just mm-hmm. so impactful in considering how research can be translated in different ways, exactly. and, and policy is one of those. So, yeah, it was great to talk with her. We're so grateful for her coming on, and we think you'll really enjoy the episode. Um, before we get to that, we wanted to ask that if you enjoy Boom, make sure to subscribe, to rate, and review us, and share Boom with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Equitable Boom for everyone. <laughs> exactly. Well, welcome back. Today we are talking with Dr. Nicole Keith. Nicole is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and the Associate Dean of Faculty Affairs in the School of Health and Human Sciences at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, and is a research scientist at the Indiana University Center for Aging, where her work focuses on physical activity and health equity, two things we're super excited to talk about today and haven't quite talked a ton about on Boom, so super unique. She also served as the president of the American College of Sports Medicine. And Nicole, we just want to really thank you for being here with us today. We saw your talk at the Wusai Human Performance Alliance Symposium a couple weeks ago, and we, Melissa and I looked at each other and we're like, we need to have her on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Melissa and Hannah, thank you for inviting me. This is really exciting for me as well. Well, I'm really curious because I think as we'll get into later, the the impact of your research on health equity and physical activity is really huge and really important, especially I think it's always been important, but it seems like particularly relevant now. And I'm curious when you first knew that you wanted to start doing research in health equity and, and physical activity. So I'm going to try to make a really long story shorter because (laughs) it really started when I was a little girl. I must have been eight or nine years old. And um, my mom was a dean of students at a university. My dad worked for a state's attorney's office in Michigan where we lived. My entire family was in Chicago. So we would go back and visit them. And their lives were really different than ours. And I never understood why. Like, they didn't live in great neighborhoods. They didn't have green space where they could play. I started to understand, well, my mom and dad went to college. They got an education. They got really good jobs so we could live in a nice place. I understood that having education and income really helps you live a better life. And then as I got older, I realized that's not right. Like, everybody should had the same opportunity that my brother and I had uh, to be healthy. Fast forward many years, I was in my PhD program at the University of Connecticut, and we um, were recruiting women for a study for the Department of Defense, and the women had to be untrained. And I watched these women who were between 18 and 22 years old go like transform from being untrained to being trained. And it wasn't just like their physical ability or their appearance. It was how they were doing intellectually and emotionally all got better because they were in this physical activity training study. Because like everybody should have the opportunity to do that. Like this is evidence to me that if we give everybody the opportunity to be physically active, they will have a longer life. They'll have a happier life. They can do better in school. They can have more friends, a better social life, have um, better self-esteem. Like I watched this all happen. And when I was at UConn, I was training to be a thermal physiologist. We were, it was an environmental physiology lab. So we weren't going to do that. Like that wasn't what we were looking at, but that's what I learned from that study in addition to a lot of other stuff. But that's what motivated me. Like, this is what I want to do. So even if you look at my CV, you'll see I went back to school after I got my PhD. I went and got another master's degree so I could learn how to do this because it wasn't part of my training. Wow. I feel like that's probably very rare to go back to school after your PhD, but I think it really just shows how important what you're studying is to you. And I think your story just shows the importance of it generally. And I think it's something that not all of us have the experience of like knowing what it's like to maybe not have the opportunity to be physically active. So I really appreciate your story. And it sounds, yeah, just really inspiring, I think, from learning what, what got you interested in this, and then how you continue to move forward then in that direction after seeing the really positive effects that it can have. I think you explained a little bit about your story and what helped how that plays out into what health equity means for you. But could you give us sort of like, what is the definition of health equity? Does that mean everyone has equal access? Or does that mean? What what does that mean to you? There's a difference between equality, which means you give everybody the same thing, with that assumption that everybody starts in the same place. And then just based on what I said, everybody obviously doesn't start in the same place. So equity is making adjustments to give people what they need. So they have the equal opportunity in terms of health to be healthy. 
And so that's an equitable chance because we're making adjustments for people based on what they need and where they are, not assuming everybody needs the same thing and starts in the same place. Mm. Wow. From your research, what are some of the most shocking disparities that you found? What are the things that you want to tackle first? So I think recently, and I presented it at the Wusai Alliance Symposium, is the disparity in income. When I looked that up, I was like, this can't be right. And so I went to other sources to talk about, like, to, that would show like, what a family of four that's white compared to a Latinx family compared to a Black family. And the disparity is remarkable. And then when you go down to single women with just your one person, you don't have a multifamily income, the majority of minority race women are living in extreme poverty. And I had no idea, but it brings me back to interviews that I've done with patients, federally qualified health centers in Indianapolis. And when we ask for income, we never ask for demographics at the beginning, but when we're done with surveys, we ask for demographics. People can always opt out. And I remember when I was a new faculty member and this patient said that her annual income was $1,800. And I said, was it 18000 She said, no, $1,800. That's my annual income. And, you know, as a qualitative researcher, you can't react. You just have to like, make sure you heard them correctly um, and that they know what they said. And she did. And so when I got to the incomes of single women, I was like, well, yeah, that's right. And that's terrible. And if you can't afford food and you can't afford shelter, then where are you going to afford the time to be more physically active? And so like that basic needs disparity is what what is the most disturbing to me. And I can't even say shocking. It was just a reminder because I hadn't looked at it in a long, long time before I prepared uh, that talk. I forgot. I have to remember. And it made me think like after I prepared that presentation, I went to the grocery store. And I was like, how do people even buy food? No, nope, they don't. They go to a food pantry because they can't walk through this grocery store. I live in a really diverse community with a lot of low-income people. And, and I'm assuming like they have an EBT card so that they can buy food. But that's probably still not enough to support them. So it's, I think, you know, when you can't, you can't meet your basic needs, it's really hard to introduce the concept that physical activity is part of a basic need or that sports participation is part of a basic need for your kids to help them develop, it's really hard. And so we have to think about while we're on the one hand, making the most elite athletes better, on the other hand, how do we even fit sport into what's really needed? I think it's a really important part of um, childhood development. Physical activity is also very important in terms of um, longevity. To answer your question, Anna, it's a long answer. I just am really reminded that people all over the world, so globally, not just in the United States, are having a hard time meeting basic needs, and yet we want them to be physically active, which is also a basic need, but it's never been introduced that way in humans. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And so you shared some of the statistics on that. I don't know if you remember any of those numbers offhand, but I do remember seeing those and just being blown away because I would have never guessed at that it would have been such a large and shocking gap. 
And you're, as you're saying that that's something that you are really motivated to change or you feel like needs to change in order to then promote physical activity. How are you thinking about how do you go and, and do work or tackle such a huge problem? Yeah, so I, I'm not saying that I'm going to address poverty. What I'm saying is that people who are in that condition should still have access to physical activity participation. So that's the equity piece. My goal is to first help people understand you can live a longer, healthier life like your life if you're physically active. That's like the human communication strategy that we have. But we also work really hard um, in my lab and in our group to elicit policy change. And so it's really important um, remember I told you the story, like my cousins didn't have green space, right? Did they not have green space? Why do only kids who are from middle income and high income families have nice parks and green spaces and safe places to play? Why are there walkable sidewalks in some communities, but not in others? Why do some communities have like really beautiful bike lanes and other communities you're really riding in the breakdown lane? Like th- these are things that a policy level that need to change so that residents can have the opportunity to be active regardless of the kind of neighborhood in which they live. I also have to say, we have to convince people then to go outside and do it. So it's it's, it's two different (laughs) strategies. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes even when presented with the opportunity, especially if it's a change from what they're used to, or if they are busy trying to work so that they can provide for their families or, you know, it's, it might be have additional barriers to being physically active and then just access as well. But I think it's just really important, I think, as you're saying, to just have this whole picture of a person mm-hmm. because I think it could have a detrimental effect if you're trying to promote physical activity and like you're saying a person might not have a safe space to do that and it could end up having sort of the reverse effect where then they become frustrated and and might not want to do physical activity because they feel like they're not able to so I think you're just your point of just really empathizing and just having a really but much better understanding of where a person's at to start is really important maybe just on this note of empathy you you mentioned interviewing with different people. And I'm curious, what are the strategies that you empathize with these different populations? And and how do those coincide with maybe some of the sort of objective research measures that you might use also in your lab? Part of that strategy is that, you know, we have just like all qualitative interviews, we have our list of questions that we want to pose to the participants. Uh, I really train my research assistants to listen with an open mind. What's really beautiful about my research team is they're from everywhere. So from Alabama and California, Indiana and Chicago. So like they're from everywhere. And so they have really different context. And so when I say, and I say we're not interviewing from our context, we're interviewing from their context and we are there to learn from mm. them. Like they are sharing with us the most important data we'll ever gain. And it's, information about themselves. And so we're listening, but we are listening not from a place where we're assuming they're going to provide us with information about their deficits. We're listening from a place where they're going to provide us information that's invaluable about how we can reach our research goals. We can't get that. If our goal is to get you to be more physically active, 
I can't tell you how to do that. You have to tell me how to do that. Like, what have you done in the past? What are your experiences with physical activity? What was the good parts of it? What was the bad parts? What's your best memory? Do you have a best memory about physical activity? Do you have a worst memory about physical activity participation? So that we can learn, like, what is it that we need to provide to you to give you equitable access to physical activity participation. I don't want people to think empathy is like, oh, we're feeling sorry for you. It's empathy, like we're trying to put ourselves in your shoes so we understand what you need. So you were published in 2017 in a special communication on achieving equity and physical activity participation that laid out this national roadmap that included steps to achieve health equity. Those steps, I think, were communication, education, collaboration, and evaluation. And so I'm curious how maybe some of the themes from those interviews, hearing what people needed, mapped to those four goals and values or steps. Well, thank you for bringing up that paper. It was it was a labor of love by a lot of investigators. So it wasn't just me. There were investigators from all over the nation who were bringing their experiences and knowledge to this paper. And we, unlike many papers, we weren't just corresponding via email. We were meeting in person and having conversations. I think we had three in-person meetings and many, many more. It was before Zoom, so conference calls um, (laughs) about what this paper would involve. So yes, we all brought our research knowledge and experiences to this paper and what's really important and what we advise. And we're really thankful for the American College of Sports Medicine and the CDC because we had to go through a lot. One of our authors was from the CDC. And when you publish with a CDC author, the CDC has to approve it before it can get published anywhere else. So there were a lot of steps to get this paper out there. But really, the take-home message we wanted from the paper is this information regarding diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice has to be part of everything we do. And um, that that physical activity is something that everyone needs. We have to match those. They have to come together. The physical activity participation considers diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice, and that the reverse is true. And there were people, like if you look at it, there's actually an editorial that said that we were misguided. Go back and look at the, look up the paper and you'll find the editorial. And then we had an opportunity to respond uh, to the editorial. Believe it or not, there are people in the world who are like, oh, that's a bad idea. Like you shouldn't pursue diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice through physical activity participation. But every part of our conversation up to this point should illustrate why that's a good idea because everybody lives in neighborhoods. Everybody does. Like you live someplace that you call your neighborhood. It's like what it is, is very different, but, and everybody has a built environment within the community in which they live where if it's developed appropriately, people could be physically active. Like you can give everybody access that way just by, and we say in our public health hat I'll put on where we live, learn, work, play, and pray. So everybody does one of those things. Many people do more than one of those things. And if we can build an environment around where we live, learn, work, play, and pray, where you can also be physically active, people will have access to physical activity participation. Hmm. 
So you shared maybe that there was an argument perhaps for against what you were recommending. But I think on, on the other side, I'm wondering if you've seen any examples of improvement or increased engagement with respect to those recommendations since the publication. I know it wasn't too many years ago, but I think, you know, after putting like you said, it was a labor of love and really thoughtful. And yeah, just wondering from the other point, maybe more uh, positive results of that. Yeah. So there's by no means can we take credit like, oh, that publication was set the world on fire. <laughs> and mayors everywhere changed their communities after <laughs> they read that paper. There's lot. There's a lot of effort going on in communities uh, at the grassroots level, but also at the public health level in trying to change communities. And so there are lots of examples that we can point to that we know this was intentional. The American College of Sports Medicine uh, has the American Fitness Index. And so uh, it evaluates the, the top 100 cities in the United States. When I say top, the biggest 100 cities in the United States, and they get ranked based on a public data that are available about health and fitness. So we monitor this through the America Fitness Index because it really is a target to policymakers to make a change. And there's a little bit of friendly competition. I'm sad to say Indianapolis is always like fourth from the bottom or something like that in the um, 100 fitness cities. But it's really not just about fitness. It's more about personal health behaviors. It includes like seeing a physician or whether or not schools offer physical education. So some of it is personal health, some of it is policy, and the ranking is based on that. And so we get to watch how cities change. And I will say in the like 17 years of the American Fitness Index, always at the top are cities like Washington, D.C., Denver, San Francisco, like these are the top. And I always joke because DC has all the national park monuments. So we can't beat them on green space. Like who can? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and you know, Denver has mountains. So there's lots of space and mountains and San Francisco has an ocean. So um, it's like, you know, that's part of the space. And so I joke, I make people mad because there are also policy changes and like what's going to be available. And so Oklahoma City that, you know, has been at the bottom for a long time, but their mayor like hopped on this and increased green space and did a lot for their city uh, to make it a more walkable, bikeable community where people could actively transport from place to place. I really think like, and a model is like a place like um, Minneapolis, St. Paul, where they have the largest trail system in the nation. So people can, from any community, get to the central center of the cities by active transport. And I used to live there and people would say, well, how do they do that? Like it's snow, there's snow on the ground for most of the year. And that is true, but <laughs> these people don't care. Like as long as you clear <laughs> the trail, they're gonna put on their warm gear. Remember only bad gear, no such thing as bad weather. So they're gonna put on their gear <laughs> and they're gonna go. And these are really good examples of like developing a physically active culture. It's not unusual to see somebody on their bicycle um, in the trail system in January in St. Paul, Minnesota. So they don't care about it's cold outside because it's always cold outside. Not always, like if somebody from Minnesota is <laughs> listening to this. It's also the land of 10,000 lakes. And so when it is summertime, it's a beautiful place to be active in the water. It's just usually cold. 
<laughs> and I lived there, so I'm not making it up. That's where I went to high school. So, <laughs> so you're allowed to say that. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you for sharing all of that. We also saw that in a in a keynote presentation you gave at Duke University in 2020, you talked about punctuated equilibrium theory when talking about the adoption of physical activity policy and public health. And we we're wondering if you could explain what punctuated equilibrium theory is and how it characterizes changes in social systems. So one of the great things about live, um, working at a university is you get exposed to other disciplines. And so this theory is comes from political science. And it was me listening to a political science presentation. Like sometimes, you know, us nerdy professors like to go to other <laughs> disciplines and like, oh, this is really interesting. I want to listen. And then as I was listening, um, these theoretical frameworks were presented. I was like, well, we kind of do this in public health. And so I started to like look at the punctuated equilibrium theory and like how it applies to public health. And it's a theory that just recognizes that policy tends to remain the same until something warrants its change. And so that's the punctuated equilibrium theory. And I'm going to give you a really good example of what happened on our campus that's a little example. It's drastic, but it happened. So it's true of example, like there was a crisis the crisis could like be new science. It could be different circumstances. It could be increased media attention, which is what happened in this instance that our students, so the speed limit on our campus, we're sitting in the middle of a city um, and there are two major thoroughfares that go through our campus to get to downtown from the west side of Indianapolis. And the speed limit was 40 miles an hour and our students were getting hit and oh um, two students died. And when that happened, we were able as a faculty to come together to our faculty council and request uh, to work with the city of Indianapolis to reduce the speed limit on our campus. And I just want you to think about like when you walk around at Stanford's a little bit different because it's a little insulated from like big traffic. But how many people do you see on their phones? Like they're not even looking up. They don't look up. They're on their phones and they don't look up. Our students are no different. When I greet the freshman class, I say, I know you learned this when you were four, but look both ways before you cross the street because the traffic's not looking for you. And then at one point, I'd said that so many times, I was like, wait, this isn't just the student's responsibility. It is the city's responsibility to protect these students. And when those two students died and the media covered it and faculty were getting interviewed and saying, the speed limit needs to be lower. Like when you go through a school zone, you have to drive 25 miles an hour or slower. Why are our students less valuable than kids who go to high school or junior high or elementary school? And so mm -hmm. I don't know that we would have gotten the public attention, the attention from public policymakers to like reduce the speed limit. And it wasn't just for our campus. It was the entire downtown. So the speed limit is now reduced to 25 miles an hour. There's no turn on red. So pedestrians have a chance. So cyclists have a chance of not getting hit by a car. When I think about like what the Wusai Alliance is doing in terms of our work as scientists and healthcare professionals, uh, this punctuated equilibrium theory could also be used to really inform. Like We've got some of the best scientists and learning minds in the nation, in the world, who are working on these problems. And so it's really important within the community, the communication strategy within WUSAI to look at 
like political science and what has worked to change laws in a variety of strategies and implement them. Well, I think that's why it's exciting. You're in part of the Wusai Alliance leadership, Nicole, like you bring that awesome perspective and that curiosity. And I think we all sometimes get stuck in our own fields. And like, I love that you <laughs> uh, stepped outside for a little bit. And because um, it is, yeah, that has so much power and potential to have impact when you do those things. And I think as scientists, if it doesn't fit like within our, for example, for me, we're always looking at behavioral theories. There are other theoretical frameworks that other disciplines <laughs> use. And we really should look at, but like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't like fit our research into theories that are fitting. We should look outside and say, what else is there? If this doesn't fit in what we're doing, what else is there? And, and learn from that. So this is my message to all learners, regardless of how junior or senior you are, to like step outside of your comfort zone. And it was it was really fun to go to the Lucy Alliance Symposium because because there was a really diverse people and we were just all in a room together. And it was like, okay, I'm going to listen to this. This has nothing to do with anything I would ever do, but oh, <laughs> the science is so cool. You know, we get together and we learn from each other. So it, it is really fun to do when you're a lifelong learner. I think it also speaks to scientists coming together to share, being able to share their research in a way that's understandable to, you know, a range of people and different backgrounds. And it seems like that's something you've really done in your career as well. I think that isn't something that necessarily comes with the job description is making sure to to give a lot of talks to diverse communities and share your research in that way. And I'm, I'm just, I guess, curious how that's kind of fit in and why you've made that such an important part. Uh, or like, I think you've really just prioritized that as part of your research. Well, I chose an academic institution that values this, and so I am I'm supported by my dean and my colleagues when I want to go give a talk or if I want to block out time, like we can do this virtually, and it works really well. But I think I was really honored. I was the 64th president of the American College of Sports Medicine, and remember that organization is... 50,000 members and certified professionals from something like 72 countries. And so there are lots of different kinds of people. They want to hear from the president and they don't care what the president's going to say. They just want to hear from the president. And then this isn't just to me, this is the 63 people who preceded me and anybody who follows me, they want to hear from the ACSM president. And very infrequently, they'll say, I want you to talk about this thing. And I will say, I know nothing about that thing. I could talk about this, though. <laughs> so, but more, more often, they just want to know like what I'm up to, what I think is important, how our profession can influence society and humans. And, and that's why I get to do this. I did it before, but at a much smaller scale. And now I'm really honored to do the work, but I'm not the president of public health. I'm the president of ACSM. And so I have to talk about lots of different kinds of things to lots of different kinds of people and answer random questions, which, you know, maybe 30% of the time, it's like, I don't even know what that question meant. So could you ask me something else? <laughs> but, then, but then most of the time, I, I can at least use my exercise physiology background married to my public health background and answer the question in some semi-intelligent way. 
And that's also why I go to all of these random presentations so that I can like learn a little bit about everything. Well, on the note of like sort of the privilege and a nice opportunity to get to go to all these different things, connect with different people, we all just came out of, or were like in a time where that wasn't possible, right? And we were sort of forced to be in this virtual state with people. Still great to be able to connect virtually, but we were noticing the differences and, and how that affected our lifestyles, behaviors, emotions, mental health, everything. <laughs> Looking back, I know you've done some research in <laughs> this area. Could you just speak on what the impact of the pandemic had on physical activity and especially on public perception and policy as we were all sort of in the same state? And maybe that's never happened before. Where we're all sort of like stuck in a certain place together. So now I can only give you my own observations. And I know that there are publications coming out on this quite regularly, but I haven't had the opportunity to dive in and read them and really can't say that it's evidence-based because it is really new science. But I think most people would agree we saw an increase in physical activity participation during the pandemic. People were doing anything to get out of their houses because there was a stay-home order. So you couldn't really go to much and so <laughs> I joke that our yard and the yards of anybody I saw were like the most beautiful yards during the pandemic because people were out <laughs> gardening and landscaping. And mm -hmm. um, I remember a story about Goodwill Industries and they were asking their community members not to drop anything else off at Goodwill because people were cleaning their houses and cleaning out their garages <laughs> and like making fitness centers so in their garage. Like capacity. <laughs> and, and I watched the kids in our community and noticed I had the benefit, really a sign of privilege. I work in a natatorium. I'm here right now. And downstairs is a strength and conditioning lab that is for academic purposes only. And, and I have a key. So my son and I, Monday through Friday, would come to the wow. strength and conditioning lab and work out. And we had that. But he couldn't go to his high school and lift. He's a college wrestler, and he's got to stay fit. And so we would do that here. And I, I would, like, watch kids, like, ripping down police tape from playgrounds so that they could play all of the nets for the basketball were in Indiana, so it's all about basketball. And all of the nets were taken down so that kids wouldn't play at the park. And we just couldn't stop them. Like, community couldn't stop kids from being outside and being physically active and their parents. We would go to, um, we've got city parks with, that have trails. There's no place to park because you have to drive there. They're, like, in the middle of nowhere. And there was, there was no space for vehicles because everybody was in the park. And so yeah. people were just as much as they could trying to find ways to get outside and be physically active. And I don't see that anymore. I don't know if it's because everybody went back to their fitness center. I know that's not what happened, but <laughs> people <laughs> went back to work and um, had to do the commute and had to do other responsibilities with their children or whomever, whomever else. And so I think with the pandemic, it really offered an opportunity for people to be a little bit more creative about how to participate in physical activities that they liked. And I really hope that as people start to fall back in their normal lives, they remember it and start doing it again. Mm. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think about how the pandemic was the first time I started trying 
or trying to go back to dance classes because they were virtual and I could keep my camera off. And then after the pandemic, I I love them. And then we started doing them in person. And I actually was like, okay, you know, now I've been (laughs) doing it at home by myself, but I think I'll go try to go to a class and do it in person. And like you're saying, I think there there are some silver linings in terms of like being creative and thinking of new ways to to exercise. But it also is difficult, I think, as people are going back to work and have more responsibilities again to be able to maintain that. But hopefully in terms of being creative about ways to exercise, that can also be, you know, thinking about like amounts of exercise or ways to kind of incorporate that in in your daily life. It's tough. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, I always say we have to give ourselves grace everywhere with everything. And this is just one more example mm. of giving yourself grace to do what you can when you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that. So we end the episode with a couple questions and the first one being if you can tell us about a time that you felt like you failed and what you learned from it hmm <laughs> 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 I'm trying, that's a great question and I, I haven't thought about like failure in a while mm. let's see so I can tell you about a time I failed with our most recent research study <laughs> and then <I'm>, <laughs> <laughs> my poor PhD student who was like, we failed. I'm like, no, I failed. <laughs> You're learning. And so, and, so, and so we were trying to implement a health equity study. And we get funding to specifically do that. The parameters were enrolling low income, racial, ethnic minorities, everybody who came to our study. So we decided, so it's hard to do that. Like it's hard to say you can only be in our study if you're a racial ethnic minority when it's a community-based study and we're trying to get everybody from the community. So we can't say, well, we only want the black and Latinx folks. What we said is we're going to go to a low-income community and implement the study. And just like the residents, we said we were only recruiting from this zip code They have to live within 10 minutes walking from this facility. And we were like, okay, that's that's the strategy. Mm. And I had done research there like that for years. Unbeknownst to me, it gentrified. So everybody we got, I'm going to say 75% of our um, enrollees were middle-income white college-educated people. We actually report on it tomorrow. And there is a big lessons learned there from us. So we learned a lot of we learned a lot of valuable information about why people move to gentrified communities. We learned who like I can compare like the study I did there ten years ago to the study today and like what the difference is. And that facility has only been there for, well, gosh, since 2012. So it's not like it's been there for 60 years. So we will be able to compare because I did a similar study Mm. 10 years ago, but it's a completely different community. And that failed like it did. You know, I got funded to do health equity and I got, you know, really a bunch of rich white people. So, (laughs) so, so, and, and we couldn't like say, oh, no, no, you can't be in the study because there wasn't even anything in our IRB documents that had that as an exclusion criteria because we just lived under the assumption that that's who was in the neighborhood and we were, I was wrong. <laughs> but what a cool, I loved how you said that, well, one, you said that your PhD student learned something. <laughs> 
So I feel like that's always a spin we put on failure. And then I like that you said that you also learned something about how people move to communities that gender, why people move to communities that are gentrifying and how those evolve over time. And so cool to be able to compare back to your previous work there. So Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that. Well, if people are interested in following up with that study or other studies and research that you're doing, how can people follow you in your work? Yeah, so I only have one social blog. I'm on Instagram. I'm only on there to see what my grandkids are doing. Um, (laughs) But I'm actively on Twitter. And my handle for both is at Nicole Keith PhD. Awesome. We'll be sure to share that with our listeners. All right. So our last question is looking to the future. What are you most excited about for the future of health equity research? I am excited. Or health equity, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, However you want to take that. I just love that we're talking about it. I'm so excited that, you know, when I started as an academic 25 years ago, if you walked through the hallway of a building in our school and people were smoking, it was against the law. And somebody would say, what are you doing? You're affecting your own health and that's your business, but you're also affecting the health of everybody in this building. Don't smoke in here. And now if we walk through and we see somebody performing a racist attack or saying racist statements or not being inclusive, not using people's proper pronouns, whatever it is, we call it out. And 20 years ago, that would have never happened. And what's exciting to me is that people from your generation and the generations that come are willing to call it out. And I remember having a student who was a white guy, and he has since graduated, thankfully. We're really happy that he. we want our students to graduate. But we were, it was during the pandemic, he would meet me at the strength and conditioning lab because my son is bigger than me and my son needed a spotter. So I'm like, have I got a deal for you? If we meet every day, you can spot my son and you can get into the strength and conditioning lab too. (laughs) You know, it was great because I know we were being safe, he was being safe. And so I felt comfortable being around him and working out. And he, and so we would talk about all kinds of things. And he was like, I don't know how I can, for example, discuss Black Lives Matter or the violence against Asians, Asian Americans as a white guy, as a middle-class white guy. And I was like, you can talk about it. Like that you asked me that question is really important. And I'm excited that even like a middle-class white guy can have this conversation with like an older Black lady like me. And we can have like a really frank conversation like we would have 20 years ago to say, you don't smoke here. We say, you don't exclude people here. Like you make sure everybody has equal an equal opportunity to be healthy and or an equitable opportunity to be healthy. And that wasn't even discussed 20 years ago. Even when I was a little girl, I was like, there's something going on here. But now it's a science and we're evaluating how to make change. So it's exciting. And that is exciting. And I think that was the first in your four steps from that ACSM publication, right? That was communication was the first thing. So I love that that kind of brings it all full circle, just talking about it. And thank you so much for talking with us. I know our audience is going to love this. And I think I know we learned a lot and just really, really appreciate the conversation and you sharing yourself, your stories, your experiences. So thank you, Nicole. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thanks for letting me participate. Thank you so much for being with us today. 
And thanks to Nicole for taking the time to be on Boom. If you enjoyed the episode and want to learn something from it, make sure to let us know and, and share the episode with someone that you think would find value in it. We want to say a big thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory, Peter Washington for the music, and of course, our awesome collaboration with the Wusahim Performance Alliance, who's sponsoring this series. If you would like to submit a research fail, a person to interview, get involved with Boom, feel free to send us an email at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. And you can check out Boom on YouTube. And <laughs> and also, you can just go to our website for all of the links to those things, biomechanicsonourminds.com. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics, Biomechanics off our minds. minds.